Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Peter Bishop taught future studies at the University of Houston for over 30 years. Peter's doctoral degree was in sociology, and he has published two books on strategic foresight, Thinking About the Future, Guidelines for Strategic Foresight in 2007, and Teaching About the Future, The Basics of Foresight Education in 2012, both with co-author Andy Hines. He is also a founding board member of the Association of Professional Futurists. In the 16 years I have known Peter, Peter, I've always found him to be a great supporter of the Foresight Masters at Swinburne and was extremely generous with his advice and, and teaching materials to help me become a better future educator. So it was no surprise to me that when he retired from the university, he became founder and executive director of Teach the Future, an organisation whose mission is to encourage and support educators who want to include futures thinking in their classes and schools at all levels. Welcome to FuturePod, Peter. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Peter. I always like talking to with you. Great. Uh, well, thanks for your chance to, to kind of talk to us and talk to the listeners. So first question we're starting everybody with is, what's your future story? I mean, how did you get into the world that you've basically been in for the last, well, you know, for all your working life? Uh, it's a story of lucky breaks. I was taking a degree in philosophy, actually, in, in St. Louis, Missouri, St. Louis University in the 1960s. Uh, was actually in the seminary at that time. And therefore, I had a, of course, classical education, both in the fact that there were a lot of uh, ancient languages, Western languages, Latin and Greek involved in that education, both in high school and in college. And of course, all the asceticism that had was rooted in the Renaissance. So uh, I left the order in um, 1973 and came to graduate school and realized that the modern world really was different. I mean, so my, my concept of social change is not measured on the latest uh, edition of the iPhone. It's basically measured in centuries. I said, wow, this is not Rome and Greece, and this is not uh, Italian Renaissance 16th century Europe. This is really a lot different. So I was intrigued by that. During those days, I was reading uh, Marshall McLuhan, kind of a little bit pre-internet kind of things. But his idea of the global village powered by satellite communication was, was intriguing. Of course, Paul uh, uh, Alvin Toffler and the other Herman Kahn, the other extrapolists and the, the, the Malthusians, Paul Ehrlich and Vanilla Meadows and, and the others. So the future was kind of in the air in those days. It was very, very popular. Uh, World Future Society was created during that time, as was the World Future Studies Federation. Uh, as a result, and not because of, I was going to be a futurist, but I switched out of physics, which I was going to go to graduate school in physics, and switched to sociology because there are a lot more interesting things going on in the street than there were in the, in, the, in the physics lab. So, and my interest in sociology was on social change. I did my master's thesis uh, on motivations for students to participate in the protests in the, against the war in Vietnam. And we intervened in a health planning agency to try and give uh, citizens more power over planning in that, both of which were about social change. I got out to, uh, to teach for a while as a sociologist in a small college in Georgia. I took over the sophomore course, which most students take in sociology called social problems, which in those days was, was, was what Sohail, in, in Sohail calls the litany. <laughs> we were talking about environmental stuff and, and poverty and, and war and all of that, all of those kinds of things. And there was no, there was not really much change in it. It was more or less a description of the status quo. We didn't even do much history and certainly I didn't even mention the future. Uh, was recruited to the University of Houston at a new branch campus that appeared near the Johnson Space Center there in 1976. 
And during, I was being interviewed by the dean uh, in Atlanta in, in the February of that year, and I had read the catalog, been through, did all my homework. And toward the end of our lunch, I said, and what's this thing called studies of the future? And he was a rather flamboyant person, <laughs> as shall I say, creative, very creative. And he shot back at me and said, well, we study the past, don't we? And I said, well, yes, sir, we do. Why can't we study the future? Well, my, I had a lot of reasons why you couldn't study the future, like the fact that it didn't exist. You know, you like studying angels on the head of a pin is what I thought in those days. So, but I wanted the job. I was being hired to teach statistics, a little bit of social science. So I got the job and came to uh, the University of Houston, Clear Lake, uh, where I found that uh, Jib Fowles, a futurist from actually a student of Alvin Toffler, I think, at the New School for Social Research in New York. And Chris Deedy, who had invented his own kind of futures degree, believe it or not, with our colleagues Jerry Glenn and Draper Kaufman and others at the University of Massachusetts, they basically uh, found a faculty member who would sign their papers, and they created this gigantic self-education program. So Jim and Chris uh, were hired by this dean, Cal Cannon, to run this future studies program, beginning in 1975. I hung around with them and the other faculty. There were a fair number of faculty associated with the program at that time. It was kind of cool. We were arguing about the limits to growth and, and all of those kind of debating society things. Oliver Markley came in uh, 1978 and ran the program for a few years. I uh, kind of went through a midlife crisis uh, in, the er, in the early 80s. I uh, was, got divorced. I sailed a small boat across the Gulf of Mexico against you know, my mother's better, better judgments, but um, came back and said, uh, I wonder if I could teach in this futures program. I was interested in social change. Of course, my degree in sociology, they never mentioned the future. They never mentioned forecasting. I mean, I knew enough stat to be able to extrapolate a trend into the future. And I thought that's basically what it was. And I come to find out, of course, it was quite different. So they said about 1982, 83, they said, okay, yeah, you can teach this, this forecasting course if you'll run the program which basically meant that I got to do all the work. Academics, uh, the hierarchy is upside down. The young kid has to basically do the schedule and talk to the dean and do all those things. So I said, yeah, I can do that too. So I took that over in 1983 and 30 years later retired uh, as an associate professor. We moved the program from Clear Lake, the branch campus, to the central campus in 2005. Uh, Andy Hines and, and, well, Wendy Schultz joined us for a number of years teaching there. Chris Jones. Andy Hines joined us in 2005 as an adjunct faculty and came on uh, with his doctorate finally and, and which gave me the motivation to retire and turn the program over to him. So I call myself an accidental futurist. It was not an intention. I, I, I read all of the futures material in those 70s, 80s days, but I never knew there was a, such a field. I didn't know there was a degree. And so just by sheer dumb luck, Mm. I found myself on a campus that was teaching the very first degree in uh, in future studies in anywhere in the world, and it's been a great ride ever since. So that's kind of my story, Peter. That's a fantastic. Uh, yes, I I share certainly your uh, your sense of accidentalism, you know, falling into a field or finding a field that was almost almost waiting for you know for me to join. So the follow up question to that is. From the program you first encountered in the 70s to the program that you started to enter in the 80s to the program you left a couple of years ago, just from how you saw your understanding and, in fact, the understanding of the field itself, what did you see across that 40-year journey almost? There were, as I say, a number of faculty members uh, associated with the program. There were three in education, one in political science. Jeb and Oliver were in the human sciences program. My first job, frankly, was that I had to create a master schedule and a rigorous way that, you know, the courses that students had to take in order to graduate. Uh, it, it, they, each one had attached themselves to one professor or the other, and, and some got, you know, had to take few courses and had lots of freedom, and others were, were more directed towards specific courses. So th it was very free, as, as in any new thing. It was a brand new campus. Yep. Uh, and frankly, it was an exciting campus because we had uh, basically graduated within the ivory covered walls, but were hired by this Dean Cannon to be uh, outsiders, to be innovators, to, to be 
you know, critical thinkers. And, and so uh, we were going to create a university that uh, was like none other. The, the, the catalog in those days when I was hired was marvelous. I mean, most of the degrees were interdisciplinary. We had faculty sp spread uh, randomly throughout this huge building, 3,000 square foot building in, in Clear Lake, uh, Texas. And uh, we knew each other. We knew we taught across disciplines. I had a psychologist on the, some, one side of me and a physicist or a chemist on the other side. And, and it was really great. Uh, all of that went away fairly rapidly, even as, as I was taking over the program, because there was no constituency for a multidisciplinary university. Yep. The state didn't understand it. The new faculty that were hired didn't understand it. The students didn't understand it. The employers didn't understand it. So we were kind of the only ones who really did. And so one by one, all of these degrees and all of this enthusiasm got channeled into what is now a fairly standard business, science, human sciences, education kind of a school. Future studies lasted in that environment for another 25 years, which mm -hmm. in one sense is surprising. But the way I tell people is that it is extremely hard to introduce new ideas to, to the educational establishment. But once they're introduced and once the matrix and the concrete pretty well set up, it's damn hard to get rid of them. <laughs> so <laughs> they finally did. Fortunately, a dean at the central campus of the University of Houston saw the value of the program, picked us up, and I moved my appointment there and whatever. So uh, it was a very heady time. Uh, I would say that the discussion in those days from 76 to about 89 or 90 uh, was basically a debating society. We were discussing, as I said, limits to growth. It was a big issue at that time because Houston was on the boom of of the energy, first energy boom, first oil price increase, and people were saying, let's go, let's go, and, and others were saying, no, that's going to ruin the world and ruin the environment and things like that. I don't know if you know much about my former colleague, Jib Fowles, who was the first chair of the program. His approach was always almost canonical contrarianism. So he was the advocate of let's grow as fast as we possibly can. There are no limits. There is no problem. I have to tell you a story about Jib. He was uh, testified. He also, one of his, after that, one of his causes was to justify violent video games as good for kids. That, that was his thing. And he went to the U.S. Senate at one time and testified to the Senate to that effect that it was fine. But he looked down the panel of, he, of the people who were also testifying. And way at the end of the panel was the man who played Captain Kangaroo in the 1950s and 60s, which is this <laughs> iconic, you know, grandfatherly figure, obviously, who said video games were terrible. So at that point, he said, I pretty well knew I lost the debate on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got beaten by Captain Kangaroo. Again, it was a very heady time. We were all talking about interesting things. And it was in the late 70s, actually, when, when the university hired Oliver Markley to begin to turn the program towards a more professional focus. Yep. Uh, the, the enrollment was slipping a little bit. The kind of the bloom had come off the rose of, the, of those kind of heady 70s days. And Oliver came, he was a colleague of Willis Harmon at the Stanford Research Institute, now SRI, and he had come with, with some good experience in doing foresight studies, future of education, those kinds of things which think tanks are often to do. So he brought that background and uh, ran the program for a while. Oliver himself is more of a visionary futurist, very much a, an innovator, open thinker. And so I, come, I came at it at a much more, what shall I say, traditional way in many ways, uh, more of a traditional kind of, if this is going to be about the future, let's get some data. Not that we can show the future, not that predictions are, are going to be accurate, but came at it with a somewhat, because I'd come away from teaching research methods and statistics, and I knew that process real well. Uh, we were actually remained colleagues through the 80s and the 90s, and I think students got a, got a good balance because he was teaching uh, visionary futures and I was teaching futures research. But I also turned the program very seriously towards the preparation of graduate uh, of graduating professional futurists. That was the mission of the program, which meant that we also, I think, were the head of the curve when it came to a lot of movements in education since then. And that is to focus a lot on skills, yep. uh, skills of 
information gathering, collection of thinking, systems analysis, uh, and even visioning and, and goal setting and facilitation and all of those kinds of things. Because we knew that people who graduated with a more academic field, which unfortunately they were in many of the schools in the university, were, were not really prepared for the not prepared for careers. They were they knew a lot, but they didn't know how to do a lot. So so we didn't uh, we really focused. Not that we didn't read classics, which we did and learn about you know the data that's going on in the world but it was all but what are you going to do with that and how are you going to present it so every course had we, we moved it to every course had a project and building the project was sometimes the backbone of most of the courses particularly the skill based based courses so it was uh, it was very much focused on that and i and i basically moved with the with the, the support and and the encouragement of the rest of the faculty moved it towards a more professional preparation yeah. and that's probably the big change that went from the 1980s into the 2000s the big change in the 2000s was to go completely online yeah uh, started that in 2001 realizing that we had an international audience and that pe many people who wanted to take the degree couldn't move to Houston so I started putting each course online one semester at a time in 2000 finished that about 2005 2006 the challenge was and many of my colleagues at the university said you couldn't do that couldn't teach complex skills online and I realized that the secret sauce was what I'll call interaction whether you're face-to-face -face or whether now in a remediated remote communication if you are in interaction with people you have the opportunity to try out ideas hear different ideas try something get feedback try it again get feedback and anyway that's the way we learn skills whether you're in the same room with each other or you're halfway across the world yep. so it has been very successful there are graduates of our program who I have never met face to face and I'm very proud of the work that they do and, and proud of the education they picked up and now uh, Andy tells me that probably 70 to 80 percent of the students in the program are taking it remotely they do come back to Houston one, some of them once a year, we have an annual gathering and we meet at other professional meetings too. But that was the second big change other than the shift from kind of a discussion group to more professional practice. It was the shift from face-to-face -face learning to online learning, which uh, was very, very different in terms of teaching and, and the learning environment. maybe take it up now you mentioned this notion of people actually you know doing the influencing or doing the real work of what of whatever foresight is in this question here I'd like you to talk about it's up to you to choose it but is there a is there a go-to method or a go-to way that you might talk to the listeners about how you would go about applying your craft or inf or influencing a group or use of a particular tool that you found really really helpful for working with groups and working with organizations. And I'll, I'll let you set the context of, of how you choose something. I don't really begin with tools. I think that's down the road. Obviously begin with concepts. And what I believe is that everyone comes to this discussion, let's say it's a discussion, with a formed image of the future and how to think about it and how to influence it. I mean, we all come in with our assumptions. And so I reflected on that because my interest is not only preparing graduate students for careers, but also now influencing younger students. Uh, and, and I wondered, where did we pick that up? None of us had a class in the future. As I said, I got all of American education and they didn't even mention the future, much less taught me anything about it or the skills to approach it. But I realized that there are three places in which the ordinary person picks up their impressions of the future and how to deal with it. And the first of those, I think, is in science class. Uh, in science class, the future is predictable. Hmm. You know, you roll the, the ball down the inclined plane and you measure the per period of the pendulum and you time how long it takes the ice cube to melt in the calorimeter and all of those kinds of experiments. And you get the right answer when you do it right yeah. and you do well. So people thought, well, this is science. Hmm. Uh, there's physical science and there's social science. So we should do the same with the economy and we ought to be able to predict the elections and we ought to be able to predict blah, 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 blah. And so that's, that's what they're thinking yep. when they come into this discussion. We ought to be able to predict. Uh, the second place where they picked it up, I think, was in history class, where they ought not to have picked this up. 
but they did pick it up because history is taught as a sequence of cause and events and consequences as almost a predetermined it had to happen yeah. way. A good history teachers challenge students on that, but I would say that they're in the vast minority. Really what we know, the whole story of the Napoleonic Wars and the American Revolution and the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. They didn't know that story. Yeah. They were basically trying to put it together as just as we are, uncertain and unclear with some firm ideas and some tentative ideas and going back and forth. We also get the idea that not only is the future predictable like it is in science, that the past was predetermined. Things had to happen the way they do. So therefore, in the future, they had to happen. The third place where people picked up an idea about the future was from their parents, their teachers, their preachers, their advisors, and every motivational speaker that they ever heard of, which who basically said, you can be anything you want to be, which is not true. <laughs> but, you know, if I work hard enough and I believe hard enough, it's almost kind of like Disney Tinkerbell. You know, yeah. if we all believe, then Tinkerbell will come back and, and be happy again. And so I began realizing that that's the mindset that I'm talking about. And without going into that much detail, I say, it, are those accurate? Mm. And I use metaphors. Uh, I say, is the is future like a river or is it like a river delta? Mm. Our, our social, particularly social history, causes that had inevitable consequences or was there some contingency involved? And of course, can you have any future you want? You can have more of it, mm. but you can't have everything because the world is going to be part of it. So where did we, we pick up those things? And so what we didn't learn was that there is uncertainty and that what science hates and our scientific culture hates mm. is uncertainty. And the only people who hate uncertainty more than scientists are teachers. Yeah. And the whole experience, I mean, the meta experience, the meta learning we got from school is that there is an answer to every question and there is a right solution to every problem. And being successful in school and in life is coming up with that answer and coming up with that solution and showing everybody else that you're right and everybody else is wrong, yeah. which creates this contentious mm. arguing about things that of which there are multiple answers and multiple solutions. and And so... Uh, that's that's kind of where I get into. So I go and say, all right, so we thought the future was going to be A, B, and C. And then I say, well, then the Soviet Union goes away. And then the first Gulf War occurs. And then the World Wide Web is created and the tech boom and the tech bust and 9-11 and, and yeah, and yeah, and yeah, and yeah. I said, see the, see the uncertainty. Should we hold to those other old ideas? about predictability and science and, and certainty and, and cause effect and deterministic consequences? Or should we back up and admit that uncertainty is dominant? Because most people don't want to admit that because they don't know where to go after that. If there is no right answer, my gosh, what am I supposed to do? What, I mean, I've been taught to get the right answer. If I don't have yeah. a right answer, I don't know what to do. And then we come in and say, yes, multiple answers, all with sufficient support, is what we're after, thinking contingently, Thing, and treating uncertainty as a real thing, not just as something to be assumed away, yep. not just as something to be kind of, uh, no, we know it's there, you can't predict the future, but we'll do it anyway, yeah. because we basically assume all the uncertainties away. Right. So that's probably, my, you know, that's a short version of probably my entry into why we need to think differently about the future. Yeah, yeah it's very much, as I said, in some of the ways I frame it, Peter, is... Um, Hindsight is always correct because it sees the absolute clarity of how things happen. But hindsight then fills us, fills us to believe that there's an equally explicable way to talk about the future. Exactly. Yeah. We, we generalize yeah. from our study of the past into our study of the future. And the one, and one of the ones I emphasize along with that is the emotional connection we have with believing that we have control as opposed to relaxing into the fact that we don't have control. And that, that for me has a big play. And I'd like you just to to comment on this notion that one of the things around how leaders themselves act in terms of supporting people dealing with uncertainty or themselves feeling I can't lead and be uncertain. Right. No, that, I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a role expectation. So a few are able to carry the weight of uncertainty and have people follow them anyway. That's very few. Most basically retreat to this is the way we're going to do it. Mm. And it's all decided. So all you need to do is follow the formula. 
And unfortunately, that's our culture. And we get that culture right out of school. Yeah. And so I go right back to the educational establishment, which really wants to teach out of the textbook, wants to teach the right answers. And those answers are okay, but they're just incomplete. They're not all the answers. They're not all the solutions. And so it's it just, I mean, the tenor of our time is so much yelling about the right answers yeah. that it comes back to backing up and saying there are none give it up, like you say, relaxing into the uncertainty and indeed embracing the yeah. uncertainty. Because what I tell people is that if it's already predetermined, what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why do you get out of bed in the morning if, <laughs> if your life is already totally figured out? And then obviously the uncertainty gives us room to then in select influence uh, and and pick the uh, some better futures that we want. So I'll take you just a little bit further down your practice approach then let's say you've had that initial conversation and you've raised the aspect and people do at least say okay all right we're prepared to to kind of put down our our first three preferred ways of seeing the future and we're prepared to accept that uncertainty is there so now what should we do next what's your next step that follows from them saying okay i'm 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 listening what have you got for me I go to the very first distinction that I make uh, when I realized not only did we not learn about the future, even in my own field of sociology, we rarely deal with change. Uh, Gus Comte, the French intellectual scientist of the late 19th century, invented, considered to be the father of sociology, and he created two major divisions. One was called social statics, about how societies are put together, and social dynamics, about how they change. There is almost nothing about social dynamics today in the field of sociology. It is an aberration of the academic life where you have to get publications as many and as fast as possible, and it simply takes too long. Hmm. There's, and, there, and survey data, uh, real empirical data, is for that particular study is very hard to come by. I mean, even historians don't like to like to do that. I mean, your colleague Joe Voros is. Uh, uh, insistence on big history, which is wonderful, is one of the few historical schools that really takes long-term social change into account. Most of them are at, at best, you know, decades maybe, mm -hmm. certainly not centuries. And so um, there was no study of social change. When I looked at the top 10 introductory textbooks in sociology on Amazon in 2007, uh, only three of them didn't even have a chapter on social change. And when I looked again about 2014, they all had a chapter, but it was always the last chapter. <laughs> and so what, you're going to study the last chapter of a textbook? Come on now. So, so students are studying the structure, the minorities, institutions, and political institutions, and the economics, and family life, and all of that stuff in sociology and anthropology, which is great. But rarely do they ever study the underlying changes within the structure as they go along. We, uh, when I, therefore, we begin our certificate course with with a discussion of change, mm. and the first distinction that I make is the distinction between two sources of the future. One is the world, and the second is ourselves. I mean, we put that kind of analytically. If we're if you're the most powerful person in the world, I guess it would be first what we do and then what the world yeah. does in response, but none of us are that way. So what's the world doing? We call that inbound change. This is the hand that we're dealt. This is the way the world is going absent any intervention we make. And that's really hard for people to think about because, well, what should we do about that? Or what, you know, what, this is terrible. What are we going to, okay, hold on, hold on, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there. <laughs> So then the other side, obviously, is outbound change. Yeah. What are, given this is the hand, this is the way things are, the way they're going, what are we going to do about it? So that's my response to now what's next. Once you've understood that the world, the future of the world is variable, uncertain, volatile, complex, whatever you want to call it, uh, now we have an opportunity to step out and do some things within what I call each of our sphere of influence, which for most people is fairly narrow. For others, it's 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 broad, a few, but at least make a difference in your world, yeah. in your family, in your life, in your community. So it, there is a second step to expressing uncertainty. It's not just sitting back, glorifying ourselves and wallowing around in the fact that we don't know anything. We also have to make a decision and we also have to step out and do that yeah so it's uh there is there is a two-step process yeah definitely i mean i'll make a confession here which i'm 
I'm sure Peter knows about. Once once Joe and I got our hands on um, on Peter's teaching materials on on our social change, we dropped a complete complete lock, stock, and barrel into the Master of Foresight course. Um, oh my gosh! And, well, um, I, I, you didn't yell at me about that. No, no, it was it was fantastic. I'm just going to say for the listener, um, you do explain a bit about inboard and outbound change in the Teaching of the Future book. Is that probably about the best? If people want to know more about this, your understanding is that is that probably the best place for them to go, or is there somewhere else you'd point them to 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 get a a good understanding of the way you approach? That's the most complete. That is literally written out in words. Yeah. It's a, it's a, as, as folks who are uh, not quite as deep, deeply academic or, or, or twisted, as we might say, in, into the academic world, it's a very heavy book. Yeah. I don't, don't deny that. But yeah, everything is, is right there. Uh, Andy published, uh, Andy and I published an article called Framework Forecasting. Right. or Kramer Foresight, I'm sorry. And that basically takes, that was published in Futures, that takes the whole uh, curriculum and basically boil our approach to mainly forecasting. There's not much about outbound change in there. In fact, if there's any real lack we have in the field is that we spend a lot of time on the, the world. That's our, I mean, we're the people who bring the outside in. We're the people who are making folks aware through scanning and scenario development and all that. We don't do much, nor unfortunately do we really have, I believe, the same depth of contribution to the outbound side. We are, it's a question of emphasis. Yeah. I mean, we're much more ambitious, really want people to be empowered, get, get great visions, work on it for your whole life, et cetera, et cetera. But the techniques and the, and the methods of doing that are pretty well understood. It's people who've been creating change throughout history. So I don't think we have as unusual a contribution or as deep a contribution to make other than saying, now that you understand how the world could be, what are you going to do about it? And get off your ass and start doing it. And, and so there is a message there, but we don't have really the tools or the approaches or the intellectual differences that other people who are doing that very well should have. And, and I think, and again, that's a lack of, in fact, I just uh, was communicating earlier today with a group that's trying to introduce hope into the, into a real school system yep. as a curriculum element. Uh, it's not there. No. Uh, and empowerment and vision and, and that kind of stuff. It's not there because it's not scientific enough. It's not rigorous. It sounds like exhortation. It sounds like motivation. And so we shy away from it, both as academics and um, as, as scientists. Thank you. As you sit and make sense of the world, how are you sense making the world and what are your what are the futures that you're paying attention to as you sense they could be emerging? Of course, we always have to talk about scenarios. The scenarios that I'm thinking of are kind of the end. Okay, this is a scenario. Let's let's make it the most radical, provocative one I can think of. The end of the ascendancy of liberal democracy and free market capitalism. That has been brooded about ever since the limits to growth and, and of course, ever since Karl Marx and, and, you know, 150 years ago. So everything has a shelf life. And what I see in the world today, both politically, socially, and economically, is that we're getting to the point where the dialectic perhaps may be taking over, where the thesis is is liberal democracy and free market economics that has done marvelous for many, many people, not everyone, of course, but many throughout the world. And yet everything reaches its kind of counter trend. Everything in the democratic area, um, whether democratic institutions can address, sufficiently address the issues and the challenges of our time, to me is an open question. If they can't, what is the alternative? Now we have a reaction to other forms, more authoritarian, less democratic, uh, which is on the rise in many countries, my own including, unfortunately. But, and, and are the democratic institutions resilient enough and clever enough to not only be able to withstand the onslaught of authoritarian tendencies to solve problems, 
get things done, but also to actually come up with creative organizational solutions as democracy itself was to be able to address those problems in, in some kind of a satisfactory fashion. That's a gigantic question. The, the, the capitalist question is this, is, this is capitalism as it was meant to be. This is the capitalism of the 1890s. Hmm. Uh, this is the capitalism that Willis Harmon wrote about in, oh, I forget the name of the, the marvelous little book on the contradictions of modern life, one of which was the fact that capitalism provides and rewards those with capital. Mm. That's why it's called capitalism. There's not wageism. It's not workerism. It's not workism. It's capitalism. Mm. So wealth begets wealth. Wages do not beget wages. And so the natural tendency of the system is to accumulate uh, resources and, and advantage and therefore political advantage at the top and to continue. And that's, we're seeing that uh, since the kind of the Thatcher Reagan revolution, which made the market the ultimate test and took it away from the uh, the political sphere as it had been pretty much for the days of the progressives and Teddy Roosevelt mm-hmm. in the early 1900s, right through the great society and the in the 1960s and 70s. So that is, those are the two big polarities that I see sloshing around the world today. I I think I'm perfectly convinced that by the end of this century, people will be surprised at how that story has turned out. Mm -hmm. Either it continues and survives or doesn't and or comes up with a third way or a fourth way. And it will be, uh, you know, so to try and say this is the end of capitalism and we go back to fascism or communism or whatever, or, or go back to monarchies or dictators and things, that's too easy a solution. I don't think we're going to go back and, and recreate those things. There may be elements of them, but there will always be some new synthesis hmm some uh, a surprising combination of the old and the new that people by sometime during this century will will begin to see and begin to practice i have no idea what that is it reminds me always has and and the way you explained it it reminds me of in sahail one of the books that sahail wrote in his macro history series is the theory of change of ibrahim haldun that talks about Oh, I, I, I teach uh, Khaldun in our social change course. I, he's a cyclic theorist. I love it. And of course, every one of, uh, of Sohail and, and Johan's theories in that book are cyclic theories. <laughs> in that sense, it's not really all of social change, but it's very cyclic for Sarkar and all. Yeah. And so for him, if I, if I take your capitalism and the accumulators of capital is the notion that they almost have a they have a golden period, and then they and then they start to become corrupt. And it's the Bedouin at the gates that actually potentially become the thing that they use to reinvent themselves. And so, you know, my notion here is: are the current holders of political power, and if, and and if you like it, the people who have the power to hold together liberal democracy, are they aware that they are potentially at peril are they aware that they are that they are losing respect sufficiently to actually embrace new ideas and of course um uh the only difference that i see with caldoun the the third generation there that you described are truly complacent they're not only corrupt they are they are lavish in their comforts lazy Mm. Uh, completely losing any any creativity and energy, and unfortunately, I think those folks today i don't they don't appear to me as being that <laughs> they they appear to me as still much too active <laughs> and much too uh building their own empires and at the certainly at the expense so so I guess the question is i mean it's 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 an age old social class. A conflict, class conflict mm. between those that have and those that don't, and surely those that don't have the numbers. Yep. But will those numbers develop sufficient yep. power and immediacy to be able to not just take over and throw folks out because you put a new group in and the new group is going to act just, I mean, I taught systems thinking mm. for 20 years. So <laughs> moving the people around is not going to make any difference whatsoever, but is not only can the Bedouins come into the city and take it over, but not just replace the people as in personnel change, mm. but actually create a new system as the, as the Democrats did in the 18th century, the small D Democrats in order to create a new system that had some believability about its resilience and ability to solve problems and meet people's needs. I am waiting for that 
next system. I don't think capitalism is going to last a thousand years. I don't think democracy is going to last a thousand years as we know it today. So there are some new systems, I believe, out there. I just haven't seen anybody really creatively come up with it yet. Let's move on with this podcast and go for four hours, if unless I... <laughs> We've been known to do that, right? <laughs> we have. We, we, we certainly have. A lot of people, I'm sure you had it in the classroom, a lot of people just struggle to explain foresight even to themselves, to their, to their spouses, to their... What exactly... And trying to find ways to explain foresight or futures to people such that they lean towards you rather than just back away or kind of, you know, drop the shutters down. So there's just this notion of what do you call yourself? What do you, how do you describe this to people who meet you? And so what do you do kind of thing? I mean, yeah, that is pretty much the second question. Let me, uh, let me share an anecdote with you. Uh, my daughter began as a, uh, she didn't, she had a corporate job, but being a millennial, that was totally unsatisfying. So she wanted to change the world. So she became an educator instead. I pointed out that she wasn't going to change the world as an educator either, but nevertheless, it was a much more noble, whatever she was, than what she was doing before. She was teaching seventh grade uh, English uh, literature. And uh, she said, what, what should I be teaching these? How should I prepare these, my students for the future? And, and I talked about uncertainty and, and thinking of multiple answers and contingency and those kinds of things. And I got a text from her about three weeks later. You know, they don't, never talk on the telephone. It's all in text now. So, so it came this text. She said, a girl answered my question in class today. And she began with, quote, it depends. I would love, love people to know how to say yeah. that and mean it that it does depend on the context, it depends on the situation, we would be so much more tentative about our conclusions. We would be so much less aggressive in our actions. Not that aggression is not warranted in certain cases, but not in every case. And again, we go back to that fundamental meta-learning we got out of school is that you have to have the right answer to be successful. And the boss uh, at work will reinforce that. And you have to have the right solution, the one right solution, and argue forever what that solution is or have it imposed upon you by somebody else who believes it is the one right solution. So if we have a mission, and, and, and this, is, this goes back to my Teach the Future Somebody asked me, I, she was going to help me fundraising, never did, but uh, was going to help me and said, well, if I approach funders, you want, them to, you want to teach the future to students. That sounds nice, but why? What good is it going to do then? And I, and I took that question seriously. I mean, we believe that it's a, it's an, it's a terminal, it's a good good. It's, it's not a good that requires further justification, but she said they are going to require that. So I thought about it again, and there is, of course, throughout this move, and it's been going on for decades now, a chance to reform education around skills, not so much technical skills or work skills, but academic skills, intellectual skills of systems thinking and critical thinking, creativity. You know, we can go through that whole litany of, of those skills. And I am approaching schools today telling them, this is what you want to do. In fact, I work with a school that put in a grant to try and turn their school into a school about skills. But it is really hard for a teacher of 10 years history or 10 years science to start teaching and back up and change their whole way of thinking and doing and teaching out of that particular mode of we're teaching the text and doing this. So I said, have them teach futures first, mm. because the good thing about futures is there is no text. Yeah. There is no answer. It's all contingent. It's all a matter. It's not a matter of opinion, but it is a matter of judgment. And judgment is are inherently both judgments in terms of inbound, what's the world could, what the world could do, and outbound, which is the right thing to do, morals and ethics and all those things. It's all about judgments. And so there, there's no tendency. And what I think is teachers, overworked that they are, and I'm a great fan of teachers, my wife and daughter among them, is that they retreat to the text. Let's Okay, we're going to study chapter four. It, 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 it's almost a survival strategy. Not that they don't want to teach the other stuff. It's a survival strategy and they don't know how and it'll take more time and we're not going to get through the material and then the students are not going to go on the test and the principal and the blah, 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 all that whole you know chain of events there. So I say start with the future because teaching about contingencies and alternatives and creative and creative critical thinking is inherent in the discipline. It could be in any discipline, but it's yeah. not. 
and they'll start with one where it's inherent, and then you can move them back into science or back into history or back into into uh, math or something. So I think there is a, a larger purpose that we have, not just about the future, but about preparing a population almost for any future. Of course, our future is probably going to be more challenging than most. So giving them these kind of skills to think in complex ways mm -hmm. and think more deeply and be prepared to defend one's position and think for themselves. I mean, this is what every teacher wants their students. Think for yourself. And what do they do when the student gives some kind of a standard pat answer out of the textbook? The only thing the teacher can say is, think about it. Oh, and I always think, oh, I forgot the thinking point. I keep forgetting the thinking point. What do you mean? What do we think about? What, how do I do that? What do I do? I mean, I, we, had a, we had a teacher workshop. We did 100 teachers in a room. How many want their students to be critical thinkers? 100%. 98 yeah. hands go up. How many are actually teaching critical thinking in their classroom? Three. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we have we have a mission. I mean, I get a little passionate here. I apologize. We have a mission not only to teach about the future, but to teach and prepare people with the intellectual and the social and the emotional skills to handle a complicated, complex future, not one that is amenable to the right answer, the right solution, linear pat uh, approaches. Okay. So I, I, I yeah. believe that this field came along literally at just the right time, you know, thank the, thanks that it did, and that we're the people who are trying to say we need to have not only a different subject in the curriculum, we need to have a, a different whole approach to learning. Last one, and you've already opened it up. So this is, do you want to talk to the listeners about Teach the Future? Well, you, you're right. I only have it. You know, what do I have, another hour? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I retired in 2013. Andy took over the program. He's doing it in Houston. He's doing a great job and really appreciate that. And I said, uh, I don't play golf and I don't fish. So what am I going to do? And frankly, without putting too much a, a fine point on this, uh, I have time. I'm fortunately healthy. I have still work life left in me. And I'm probably one of the many, yourself included, and others who could take on the mission of taking what we teach in graduate schools and making it appropriate in, in curriculums and lessons for uh, secondary school students, uh, middle school and high school, and coll undergraduate college students. I mean, it's a vast, vast uh, array of those students. There are hundreds of millions, if not a billion of those students. So it's a huge, but these other subjects were created at a certain time. Science was not always in the curriculum. Computer science was not always, bio, biology was not always in the curriculum. So when minority studies was not, and urban studies, and all these kind of things. So I believe that uh, it is time that we take the future seriously in school and we prepare students for that. So all my mission is very simply to encourage and to support educators to include the future in whatever way they choose in their classes and their schools. Have formed a few groups, foresight educators, uh, people who have taught the future to undergraduates or high school students, and another group who are trying to bring those about in their countries. Some of your colleagues in Australia are part of that, that second group. And so um, it's, it's, it's my life's work right now. I guess I'm, uh, many people tell me that I'm failing retirement, <laughs> which I'm, I guess I'm happy about. Okay, <laughs> if I'm going to fail, I'd rather fail working than, uh, than not. So that's basically what it is. Teachthefuture.org is the website, yeah. and you can find everything about us there. Yeah, I'd, again, I'd, um, for anyone listening who, and it doesn't need to be, while it may well be an educator or a person who knows an educator, it can also just be a parent of someone who gets a chance to come into their school and help the schools, because goodness knows schools that have parents that want to get involved in in assisting. Again, most schools and most principals and most teachers will say, yes, you're welcome. I get a lot of, I get a lot of parents who really worry about their kids' future and, and what the schools are really doing for that. The problem is there's almost no concentrated place yeah. where one can address parents. I mean, you can address yeah. school districts and associations. You can address businesses and business associations, government, obviously. Parents are such a gigantic 
field, a gigantic set, but they're so dispersed. And frankly, in most educational systems, though they send their kids to the school, they don't have much influence, not no. enough, not as much as perhaps they should. So there is a, there, there is a, a, a way to approach them. I just haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, but certainly if anybody thinks they would like to possibly, you know, know more about the, the Teach the Future initiative, contact Peter. Uh, the details for the website and, and contacting Peter will be, on the, uh, will be on this podcast. And Peter, I know, would encourage and welcome anybody who got in touch with him saying, look, I'm trying to do something in my local school in terms of the resources that are made available. That's the whole point of it. That's one of the points of the organization. I certainly appreciate that, Peter. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's vitally important that we introduce this. I mean, you and I have been preparing graduate students for a long time. It's yeah. now we start preparing high school students. Yeah. Not yeah. for careers yeah. necessarily, but at least to handle the future in an appropriate and effective way. Well, it's been, look, you've been, a, you've been an ongoing hero of mine for a long while, Peter, and um, it's been a privilege to, talk, uh, to know you for these 16, 17 years. It's been a great privilege to have you. Uh, on on the first on the first cut of the uh, the future pod people so thanks very much for taking time out to talk to us and show us your passion and enthusiasm for the future well it's people like yourselves peter and your colleagues richard and and uh rowena and joe and all this there have given us a lot to uh, a lot to model and we've actually taken a lot of your material, and Andy has, and dumped it in our curriculum, too. I just wanted to return the favor. We're teaching Integral and CLA and all of those things, which, frankly, I thought was a little bit woo-woo for, you know, for my taste when before Andy went down and drank some of the Kool-Aid down there with you guys. Yeah. And so uh, we, I think we have now two programs or have two programs that uh, we're doing a good balance of the, uh, the more pointy-headed uh, – uh, way that I would approach the future and, and the somewhat more paradigmatic ways that you guys did. I think it was a nice balance. Yeah, thanks very much, Peter, and uh, all strength of the future for you, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll talk some more. I look forward to hearing the podcast, Peter. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.